it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, everybody, before you dive in and start ingesting this episode, we want to forewarn everybody that this is not intended for absolute beginners. If if there's anything in the episode today that you listen to that you're unsure about, confused about, maybe don't quite understand, please go back to our Investing for Beginners series, which starts at episode 43. And there, through those next five episodes, you'll be able to learn all kinds of great basics that will help explain a lot of the the topics and subjects that we're discussing today. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have episode 229. We're going to answer three great listener questions we got recently. And so without any further ado, I'll go ahead and read and Andrew and I will do our usual give and take. So here we go. If I'm investing piecewise dollar cost averaging into several accounts within a brokerage account, how do I figure out what my profit or loss is over time? Seems like brokerage accounts do not want us to know that because one is more likely to stay vested for fear of a potential loss if they liquidate the fund. For example, neither Vanguard nor Fidelity have buttons that'll tell me what my profit or loss is, excluding my own contribution. Their percentage increase or decrease is misleading because it includes personal investment into account, which is egregious. So how does one go about determining the profit or loss with certainty? Should we be looking for a button slash tool, et cetera, in brokerage accounts to determine that? Mo. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Mo's really good question? I would say, depending on the brokerage, I've found that I just kind of have to track all that stuff myself. Do you track your profit losses separately? I do. So, that's what I do. Like, if you were to take a brokerage, not to like pick on brokerages or anything, but I know Ally Invest, I have an account with them. And one of the things that kind of annoys me about it is, let's say I buy Cisco stock for $150, and if I were to get like a dividend of a dollar, they would increase my cost basis by a dollar. So it makes my my profit 
look less because every time I reinvest the dividend, they're making that initial cost basis higher. I don't know if that's a taxing. Maybe all the brokerages do that. That's quite possible. Me not being a tax accountant, not knowing that. I, I take all of the purchases I've done and the dollar amount, and I have that on one column. And then you can import into a a new column, whatever your stocks are priced at today. And then you can compare those and you can see if you have a profit or a loss. Yep. I I do the exact same thing. I noticed kind of early on when I started investing that I didn't have a big portfolio and I didn't have a lot of positions. And so it was easier for me to track. And I noticed right away, like, I don't know how much money I'm making or losing because they're not really telling me. And it's a little confusing. And and like Mo is saying, I know with Fidelity, for example, you, it shows a gradual increase in my portfolio, like percentage-wise. But then if I look at the dollar amount, it's, of course, down because everything's down right now. And the two don't correlate. And so it's confusing because really what it's doing is it's taking my contributions every quarter or every month and adding those, like my portfolio is going up, but it's actually not. It's just I'm adding more money to my portfolio. But because the price action of the companies that I own is going in the other direction for a lot of them, uh, especially today, then it was. It just makes it look like you don't really know how much you've gained or actually not on the positions you've invested in. So there's not really a button that I'm aware of <laughs> with any of the brokerages. So no, unfortunately, I, we can't give you a good answer on that other than no. DIY. Yep. I don't see anything good with that. So yeah, unfortunately, you're going to have to do it the old fashioned way. Cool. Well, if that changes, maybe we can post an update one day. So I'm going to move on to the next question. This is, hey, Andrew and Dave. So I have a question for you. I've heard Dave say he owns HP stock and that it hasn't done what he had really wanted to do. And he said he wasn't sure what to do with it. So my question is, I thought we were supposed to buy and hold forever. So why not just hold on to it? If it is not going down, why not hold it? I have heard, I believe it was Dave say that Microsoft went like 10 years undervalued and that it was unrealized by the market and that he didn't know if he could hold it or increase his holdings in it 15 years ago. And now it's made some great gains. I've just heard that we buy investments, not ticker symbols. If we believe it's a good company and it's not breaking a hard and fast rule, why not hold and see what happens to it in 10 years? He's saying, I'm not trying to say that you two don't know more than me or you don't know better than me because you two are definitely smarter at these things than I am. I've just heard the greats like Warren and Charlie and Phillips say you buy and hold forever. Sorry if this is a stupid question. I'm just trying to understand. Thank you for your time. Have a great day. So that is a fantastic question. So that's a really, really good question. It's kind of appropriate because uh, today, May 5th, we saw a pretty big downturn in the market today. The Fed announced yesterday that they were going to be raising the rates the market reacted quite favorably the day before, and then today was a bloodbath. So it, it's kind of appropriate to talk about selling and kind of how to handle your portfolio when you see parts of the market entering potential bear market territory. I believe the NASDAQ is very quickly approaching bear market territory, which I believe is a 20% decrease in a period. And the S&P 500 is not too far behind and the Dow is a little bit farther behind. So all that being said, it's a good time to probably have a discussion again about how to handle your portfolio and what to do with companies. So the company that that I was referring to was actually Intel, which the ticker for that is INTC. And that's a company that I've owned for about three years now. 
And it's a company that has not really done well in the market. And it's kind of been a sideways company, if you will. It's traded between around $45 to $60 a share in that time frame. So it's been up a little bit and down a little bit. My cost basis is around $52, $55, somewhere in that range. So right now I'm underwater on, on the investment. So the kind of the idea and the reason why I brought it up is because I've been wondering what do I do with a company that's not performing the way I anticipated it would when I invested in it. So whenever you buy a company, whatever the company is, we all form a thesis or an idea behind why we're buying this company. And in the case of Intel, I wrote down a long list of all the things of the reasons why I was buying the company and some of the reasons why I would be hesitant to buy the company. And so by and large, a lot of the things that I bought the company for are still kind of in play, but there's some things about the company that it just doesn't seem to be gaining any traction. And it's fallen behind technologically, behind competitors, AMD, TSMC, and others. And so it's it's struggling in that regard. It doesn't have quite the same leadership it used to as far as technology and being an innovator. And there are definitely some things that it's still doing well, and it still controls a dominant share of the PC market, as well as other factors that it is involved in. But the company has a lot of irons in the fire, and not everything is hitting on all cylinders. And in particular, the fabs are really struggling. And they're doing some great things with other aspects of computers, but without going into all the nitty gritty, basically my worry, and I haven't resolved the worry yet, is that the company is going to be like Microsoft was, where Microsoft reached a high in 2000 and then it dropped and it didn't get back to that high until 2015. So it took the company 15 years trading below its high watermark and basically trading flat or sideways for a very long time before it started to recover. And it really didn't start to recover, frankly, until they got new management. And he, Satella Nadella, Satya, Satya Nadella, I think that's how you say it. If I'm saying it wrong, I'm sorry. He kind of instituted a change and started moving Microsoft in a different direction, business-wise. And that's really what's led to the resurgence in the company. And so Intel has a new CEO, Pat Gelsinger. He took over about a year ago or so. and the jury's still out on whether his ideas to turn around the company will bear fruit or not. And so at this point, I'm willing to hold on to see if that will be the case. But here's the reason why I'm vacillating is because I think there's other opportunities in the market that I could make better money on than the company that I hold now. And if the if that position doesn't improve over the next whatever period, two or three years, for example, then I could have some opportunity loss in maybe investing that money in another company that could do better. And so there's a tug of war going on. So I still have the the thesis hasn't changed that much drastically that I'm okay, I'm definitely done. I'm out of this kind of thing. Like I was with GameStop a few years ago. It changed. It wasn't going where I wanted it to go. I'm out. Done. Fine. But what was it in GameStop that you didn't like that made you leave? When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, 
I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. What was it that made me leave? Basically, I just didn't believe that the direction that the company was trying to turn towards was going to bear fruit. At the time, they were talking about moving more towards a collectible, being a bigger portion of the business and helping that sustain the fact that retail or the in-store sales of video games in particular, that they could offset that by increasing the revenues from selling collectibles. In other words, like old games and merchandise and things of that nature. I didn't believe it. From what I've seen since, it doesn't look like that's done much anyway. So I think my idea at that time that this wasn't going to go anywhere is proving out to be correct. So I feel like I made a right decision to get out of the company at the time. And I, so, yeah, I agree with that. What was the research process behind that? Was it like, I'm just trying to just so people can apply it to other companies and not mm-hmm. just one company or another. Right. Is there something in the numbers? Is there something in like, are you just Googling to figure out what the company's doing? Like, how do you determine for like the GameStop example that, okay, they're not executing on the plan and it's obvious to an outsider? For me, it was several things. Number one, I obviously read the financial reports. I also listened to their earnings calls. I listened to multiple earnings calls. So it wasn't just one. It was four or five of them I listened to slash read through and to kind of hear what management was saying about how they recognized that the company was struggling and they recognized that they were could be in trouble 
because of what was happening in retail in particular with their business model of selling, you know, physical games in the store that the way people were playing video games was changing and that they didn't really have an avenue to partake in that per se. And so they were relying on sales of games, physical games, as well as console. Well, that was changing too. And how the consoles were coming out and the company was very cyclical based on when Microsoft would release a new terminal. And so that led me to think, okay, you know, this could be a problem. So then they started talking about trying to change to collectibles and things of that nature. And so what I did was I started reading about, I went online and I just started Googling collectibles and kind of just to see what the market was for that. Not necessarily for games per se, but like things like baseball cards and memorabilia and, and all those kinds of things. That kind of stuff was seeing a huge downturn. And so that led me to think, okay, well, if baseball cards, for example, are struggling, then I don't know that people are going to run out and buy physical games too. And so that kind of correlation kind of made sense to me. And then I also started seeing that they were starting to close stores. So they're closing locations. And then they're also trying to expand business in the locations that they have. Well, that's not a formula for success. You can't, if you don't have foot traffic and you're closing the stores, you can't necessarily up the check average per se. You need to up the check average or you need to up the foot traffic. And I didn't think either one was going to make it happen for them. And then you just see the general trend towards retail, physical retail struggling, just all those things combined with what GameStop was trying to do. I was like, yeah, this isn't going to cut it. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree on the general GameStop thesis. It's really tough, especially when half the Xboxes out there today are not coming with a disk drive. So you're just downloading it online. Right, exactly. So that's kind of what led me to believe that I needed to get out of GameStop. But the same token, Intel has not gotten there yet. And my thesis is still in play. But, you know, realistically, I'm probably going to give it a couple more years to give them a chance to turn around the business. And if they can't, then I'm going to have to make a decision at that point. How would you define them making that transition and them not? Is it something in the numbers or is it something that's more like a gut feel? It's probably going to be a combination of both. So if you look at the company numbers-wise, revenues have been kind of eh over the last two or three years. I think they've grown in a range of 2 to 5%, which is, you know, for the size of the company, not horrible, but by the same token, not great. If you look at down, farther down the income statement and the balance sheet, everything else is ridiculous. I mean, their operating margins are monstrous, net income margins, monstrous. They pay a dividend, they buy back shares, their returns on capital are fantastic. They super strong balance sheet with way more cash than they have debt. Financially, at this point, there's really nothing wrong with the company. It's just a simple fact that they're not really growing revenues and they're kind of in in my experience it looks like they're relying on their past glories for today's success and it doesn't look like there's much going on at the moment that's going to drive them forward and that's what i want to see and if i don't start seeing some of those things i.e some of the turnarounds in the technology if they can't start up in their game and the technology part of it my worry is that they'll turn into an ibm yeah so i've got some thoughts about 
this question. I think it's really key, and especially, you know, unfortunately with the market going down, hopefully you've had good sell strategies on the stocks you buy and you kind of have a general idea of when you want to get out and when you don't. Part of it too, I think, is sometimes you just make a mistake as an investor and sometimes you just you don't do good enough analysis and when you realize it, hopefully you can cut the losses. You look at even the best investors ever. I mean, a good investor, if they're right 55% of the time, they're doing a really good job. And that's just the way the market works. So for me, I have a company I just recently sold out of. And I felt like I made a huge mistake because the company's Ways Markets, they're a grocery store company. And at the time, I guess I didn't appreciate or respect the fact that management had said what they're going to do with their profits. They said, we're just going to, we intend to pay a dividend, which, you know, lots of companies do that. We also intend to buy more investment securities. In other words, they're taking their cash and they're just storing it up in the balance sheet. So even though my thesis on what the company would do played out, which is COVID happened and grocery stores are going to get big profits and growth, and that's happened so far, what hasn't changed, which I thought might maybe would change is that management's not doing anything with it. You know, They're not expanding. They're not opening new stores. They're not investing in inventory. It's literally just they're keeping it on the balance sheet. And so when I look at that, I have to realize, okay, maybe I thought they were going to change that. And if they're not, then the money is better put somewhere else where a company is actually reinvesting that in the business and using that to grow. Yeah, those are great points. And that's a great example using Weiss Markets and kind of how, in essence, the narrative changed. The idea and the thesis that you created when you bought it, in essence, kind of changed. Or Well, our, it really didn't. I, it was, it was well, something I missed because yeah, our idea if of I would have dug deeper, I would have seen that this is kind of par for the course at this company. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they're yep. just going to, they're going to make profits and they're just going to keep it inside the company. That's exactly right. And to kind of answer this question, kind of the the idea behind it, when we say that we want to buy and hold forever, that is ideally what we want to do. And when you buy a company, you hope that you have made all the right decisions and all the right choices and noticed all the things that could have a bearing on the company when you do your analysis. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that people make mistakes and sometimes we misjudge things. I have another company in mind, PayPal that I bought eight months, nine months ago or something like that. And, you know, in hindsight, I think I made a mistake on my analysis of the numbers of the company and I bought it at too high of a price. And now I'm down 64% or something crazy like that. So it's a big loss. But at this point, I'm not planning on selling out of the company because Andrew and I were talking about this before we came on the air and he asked me, would you buy it now at today's prices? I absolutely would. And so that just means to me that I would dollar cost average into it and try to earn a lower cost basis, which when the company starts doing better in the market, then it will start to improve in the market. One of the things that our friend Braden said is several times to us is that business re- results matter. And in the long term, those will make an impact on what happens with the company in the stock market. And sometimes everything gets thrown in with the bathwater. And I'm not saying that a company like PayPal, for example, didn't deserve to see a 60% drawdown. It may have been all the stock gains that the company 
is going to earn may have been pulled forward because of the pandemic, because of the stimulus checks. There's lots of things. You know, for me, it could have been the fear of missing out. I could have easily fallen victim of that. I didn't want it to see it become the next Google or Costco where I missed buying it at a lower price. And then, you know, the market continues to reward the company for its success. And in the future, you know, I miss out. So, but ideally when we go into a company, we want to hold it for a long period of time. But one of our other, I guess, rules or certainly an idea for me is that if the thesis or the idea behind the company changes for whatever reason, if the business fundamentals or something about the business changes, then that's when you need to reassess your investment. You can't just buy something and forget about it for 10 years and not pay attention. It doesn't mean that we want you to buy and sell in a month, but you also need to give things time to play out. And sometimes the the narrative will change and sometimes it'll change for the better and sometimes it'll change for the worse or management will leave or there's just a myriad of things that could go on. GameStop's business model could stop being a thing. And then it becomes a problem for the business to continue. So, you know, those are all things that would lead you to think about selling at any particular time. And those are all things you need to keep in mind when you buy is, you know, having a sell strategy is just as important as having a buy strategy. Okay. We've beat that to death. So let's move on to the next question. So I have uh, a dear Andrew and Dave. Huge thanks for your excellent podcast. It really opened my eyes on investment as I am on my path to become a more intelligent investor. Having said that, I sense there is a contradiction between the two major slash principles you guys are promoting. One, buy and hold, buy more when the price falls versus two, sell when the price falls heavily, e.g. buy 25%. On the one hand, you are advocating to really hold your stock for the long term despite the volatile stock fluctuations as they do not necessarily show the actual value of the company. Even more, you are advocating to buy more when the stock price falls as considered being at a discount level. We do not care about the views of Mr. Market that much, right? On the other hand, you are saying that you're using 25% trailing stops who often provides examples where he sells automatically if the price drops by 25%. How is it different from the speculative approach, which just follows the market price? I understand that Andrew uses trailing stops for companies that are not his dividend fortresses, but for me, it is still super confusing and unclear what I should sell when they fall and should I hold on. Really grateful for your amazing podcast. I really love that is not flashy and does not you clickbait titles. Regards, Leupicus from Lithuania. So hopefully I said that right. <laughs> so Good job. Right. Thank you. Sounded Andrew, right to me. <laughs> Andrew, what are your thoughts on this great question? So in the past, I used to, just to give a background information, when I first started out managing a portfolio, I had my portfolio in two different buckets. There was the regular portfolio. I put that in air quotes where there's a trailing stop attached. And then there was the dividend fortress stocks, which are intended to be held a lot longer, you know, ideally 10 years or more. And those did not have trailing stops. I found that it did not work for me in several ways. One of them is exactly like Ludovicus is saying, sorry, I didn't mean to butcher that, is yes, if you are using a trailing stop, you basically are kind of teaming up with Mr. Market to say, hey, what do you think? Should I sell? That's completely goes against a lot of the things that we pay attention to, we teach, and we have read about. And so I started to understand that why do that for a part of my portfolio? Why do that for any of my portfolio if if I'm not going to do it for all of the portfolio? 
So that was part of it. The other part was I realized that the type of investment strategy I was looking to do also evolved over time. So in the beginning, I was really big on trying to find stocks that are really, really trading at a discount, like, you know, hiding under the floor of the clearance rack kind of an idea and buying and selling a lot of those. Over time, I felt that that just doesn't really fit my personality. And I like the idea of businesses doing the work for me over the long term and compounding that money rather than me having to micromanage every month trying to buy and sell when something's expensive or cheap and do that over and over and over again. So the trailing stop could potentially help you if you're getting in and out of a lot of stocks and being very, very active. Over time, I've become a lot less active, which means I'm also a lot less picky on price. And I feel like that goes hand in hand. So I'm staying away from the clearance rack most of the time. I'm not going to you know, the most expensive designer section. I'm staying with where the prices are fair with these stocks and good businesses that I know can compound my money, have a good idea that they will do that and buying them at fair prices. And so once you kind of make that switch, then 100% doesn't make sense to have a trailing stop. So as you listen through the archives of the podcast, you listen to where we were when we first started in 2017, as we continue to teach through all of the different concepts, you can see as our approach has evolved and my approach is certainly involved. And so that's why I don't use trailing stops anymore. Yeah, I agree with everything that Andrew is saying. And if you listen back to the entirety of our catalog, you can see that when we started, we were a certain type of investor. And over time, as we've learned more and gained more experience, we have, like Andrew said, evolved a little bit. And the the basic core ideas of what we're looking for and how we invest, that really hasn't changed. But our understanding of businesses as we studied them more has evolved. And as you gain more insight into how companies do what they do and the different things that you'll see in the market, as well as the different things you'll see in the companies, that will, of course, evolve how you react to certain things. And it becomes much more important to understand kind of the experience and ins and outs of the business as opposed to focusing 100% solely on the numbers. At the beginning, it's easier for people that don't have a lot of experience really understanding more of the guesswork that the gut feeling part of learning about how a business does what it does, it's much easier to look at an operating margin and project that that's going to go up a percent over the next year or two and kind of thing. But once you get better at understanding how businesses do what they do, you understand, you can get to a feel for the mechanics of why that operating margin may improve over the next two years is because the company is reducing costs or they're selling more higher price products which give them a bigger margin on the between the cost of the good and what they're selling it for which increases their margins all those things are things that you learn as you gain more experience and as you read more financial reports and understand how businesses do what they do and if you look at just about any investor out there you're going to see the majority of them evolve. Warren Buffett is a classic case of somebody that has evolved his thinking in part from his experience from Charlie Munger, who certainly influenced him as well as it's just his own inquisitiveness and knowledge. And you know, the fact that he's been reading financial reports for 70 years, he's figured out a thing or two. And so he's 
you know, when he started, he was very much a cigar butt investor, kind of like Andrew was talking about buying the things that are below what falls on the discount floor and, you know, trying to get one more puff out of them before selling them and moving on to the next thing. And now he's evolved into where he just basically, you know, he, he tries to find these great businesses that he may be willing to pay a little bit more for, but he's going to hold them for a long period of time that will give him great returns. So like Andrew was saying, the price becomes a little more immaterial than it did at the beginning. It's still important, but it's maybe not as important as it was before. So all that to say that I think when you look at how investors grow, it's just because they they gain more experience. And and all of you out there that are listening to us will and are experiencing the same thing. If we go back and look at the questions that you guys were asking us five, four, three years ago to now, they've you know evolved. They're far more in depth. They're a lot more nuanced and they're a lot more creative. And they're also definitely pushing the boundaries of what maybe beginners would necessarily ask. And, you know, don't get me wrong. We still get lots of those questions too. And those are great, but you, we certainly have seen an evolution in the people that are listening to us that have learned, you know, from the experiences of doing this for themselves and listening to us along the way. So these are all things that are naturally going to happen as you become an investor. The idea that you're going to invest the same way now as you will five years from now, you're going to change. You know, you're going to change everything. I mean, think about pizza. You know, when you first start buying pizzas, it's the Totino's pizzas, the frozen pizzas. And then the next thing you know, you're, you know, buying Papa John's or Domino's and then you're graduating to you know, some, you know, local restaurant that's got the best pizza and you'll never go back to eating Papa John's or Domino's or Totino's again. So it's just natural for people to evolve. I think something last time we talked about, still laughing about your pizza comment. Last (laughs) time we talked about Buffett's evolution, I mentioned, and this is something that you helped coach me through during the pandemic was you don't have to evolve all at once. You know, Buffett took a very long time over his evolution And so you do have to be careful about the evolution too, that you're not just moving with the market and you're just kind of changing the way you think all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a very other process. So hopefully by listening to our show, you're internalizing the primary fundamentals and principles that are important, margin of safety and buying for the long terms, things like that. Yes, you certainly do want to evolve that over time. I mean, look at Buffett, just to kind of go back to him one more time. He said he never wants to buy technology stocks and his number one holding over 50% of his portfolio or something yeah. is Apple. Yep. So, you know, if Buffett can evolve and he's the best there ever was, yet he's choosing to evolve, then I think we can all certainly learn from that too. But he did it over time. He did it over years and decades and it wasn't oh my goodness, the market's down 10%, so I'm going to change everything I do. That's wasn't. That's not evolving. That's freaking out. Yep. <laughs> yep, yeah, I agree. All right, folks. Well, with that, we are going to go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank everybody for sending those three great questions. Those were awesome. And you guys are asking, like I said, great questions. And these are really timely topics, especially with some of the things that are going on today. So thank you again for sending all that great stuff. Again, if you guys have any questions about anything that we discussed today, please refer to our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. We have a search bar there at the top. It's a great encyclopedia for you to great to look for all kinds of great topics and subjects that we talked about today to help answer any additional questions you may have. There's about a thousand articles on there, so there should be something there for everybody to That's find. That's not a joke either. It's no, literally it's over a thousand. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. So 
Without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.